Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. We've done a bunch of top fives and we've gotten great feedback on them. We've also had a great deal of guests on our show from colleagues to students, to historians and editors of worldwide magazines and nationally renowned books. Today, we're combining the best of both worlds. That's right, Phil. We're taking a top five and we're mixing it with a guest speaker. So welcome to the top five weirdest traditions. It's a top five, it's a missing chapter chat, and it's our friend and colleague's first time on the podcast. Join us today in welcoming historian, coach, and friend of ours, Justice Parker to today's episode of The Missing Chapter. Hello, everybody. I am Phil Schaff here with Phil Horner. Welcome to The Missing Chapter podcast. Before we get started with our special episode, we're going Utica Coffee Roasting Company's cinnamon bun. Has to be one of my favorite flavors of all time. I don't even think you need creamer. It's that good. Now, we got that out of the way. Let's introduce colleague friend of ours we talked about him in the intro welcome for the first time on the missing chapter mr justice parker welcome justice hey thank you guys. i can hear the applause over the speakers hey we've been building up to this for a long time yeah you know it's if we're if we're being honest it is almost june we're at the tail end of may here and this is something that we've been you know coordinating our our schedules on and um it's finally happening we're excited yeah and the top five big uh big fan favorite of the missing chapter listeners. So we're going to go in completely random order. At least mine are. You are yours randomized? Yeah. Completely yep. random. I got five in front of me and I'm just going to pick and choose. So without further ado, let's get into it. Uh, Phil, Justice, you guys want to take it away? Let's do it. All right, Phil, go ahead. All right, my first bizarre or strange uh, tradition, I'm going Groundhog Day. Mm-hmm. Not the movie, all right, which I love starring Bill Murray, but the tradition of actually taking a hedgehog or or like a groundhog out of its slumber and having it determine the weather yeah that's weird is very strange so groundhog day has its roots in the ancient christian tradition of candlemas Hmm. i'm not sure if either one of you has heard that tradition no no when clergy would bless and distribute candles needed for winter the candles represented how long and cold the winter would be all right you can maybe see where i'm going here germans expanded on this concept by selecting an animal they chose the hedgehog as a means of predicting weather. Once they came to America, German settlers in Pennsylvania continued the tradition, but they switched from hedgehogs to groundhogs because they were more plentiful in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, with regards to Puxatawney Phil, arguably the most famous of our groundhogs, in 1887, a newspaper editor belonging to a group of groundhog hunters from Puxatawney called the Puxatawney Groundhog Club declared that Phil, their Puxatawney Groundhog, was America's only true weather forecasting groundhog. And since 1887, the rest of the country has kind of followed suit. They've looked to him to determine how long or how short winter would be. Wow. I, it, 100% weird. Yeah. And, and I, you know, it still goes back to, I wonder why the Germans, out of all the animals that they had to choose from, I'm, I'm not sure it's because of... Maybe the hedgehog was was common in Germany during this time. I yeah. still think hedgehog is a little bit strange, but then they made the connection from hedgehog 
to groundhog like i like i said when they came to the u.s because they were plentiful in that state but then the candle too the yeah they jumped from the candle that that would be blessed wow. and determine the length of winter okay um to an animal wow well yeah. done sir that's a good start okay yeah. we're getting the ball rolling here justice you're up that's hard to top right uh, yeah. i i think of one that um many of us if you have a good friend in your life will have an opportunity to um to to be right which is a best man oh, right? oh right. that's good sure yeah yeah a best man the concept of a best man is quite an interesting one um had had my opportunity this year for the first time to do it and i didn't really understand uh exactly what was um the history behind it right, right. what it truly right. entailed right until you look into it and and when you look back at it right it's um it's really to ensure that the the groom goes through with a financial transaction of sort, right? With the, <laughs> with the, uh, the father of the bride, Ooh. the father of the bride. Right? Oh, interesting mean, as, twist. As we know, right? Historically marriages, they're rooted in, in connecting families, um, financially and developing, uh, you know, these ties that can be un, unbro- unbreakable, nice. I should say throughout time, not so much based in love, uh, right. that we like to think of more in a modern context. Um, but, the, the point of the best man is that if the you know soon-to-be husband decides he wants to back out, it's the best man's job to be there and make wow. sure they follow through. That's great. Wow. I love it. I didn't know that. And you've got your feet you got your feet wet here. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. All right. Now we're going Phil, to my, my fifth. All right. You guys were very mild. Oh. My top five, I, I think, not to brag, I think my top five are the weirdest I'm going to take the cake. Uh, okay. Yeah. Head scratcher number one. Here we go. The phrase running around like a chicken with its head cut off is taken very literally mm-hmm. in Fruita, Colorado. Every year for the last 21 years, this weirdest tradition in my, uh, maybe it's not the, the first on my top five, but we'll see. This town has celebrated one chicken's will to live. It's based around a weird and gruesome story dating back to 1945. You history buffs, end of World War II, about how a chicken, how a chicken named Mike got the axe, uh, simply refused to die, though, and was then fed and taken care of by his executioner. So the story goes, and this weird tradition continues, today, Mike the Headless Chicken is celebrated with his own festival the first weekend in June. And here we are coming up pretty quickly. The first weekend in June, somewhere in Colorado, they are celebrating Mike the Headless Chicken. All right, for our number two here, gentlemen, Mm -hmm. uh, let's go back to Justice. We're going in completely random order here, listeners. So Justice, what do you got? Take it away. Yeah, so the the next one I have here for my number number two is uh, pardoning the turkey. Oh right. yeah, hardening the turkey. Such a strange tradition that we see every single year. Was the uh, president is uh, around Thanksgiving time? They receive these gifts, right? These gifts of turkeys throughout time, and the history of that that gift giving it goes way, way back, right? To like Harry Truman before before Harry Truman actually the, the presidencies of of way way long ago. However, the concept of pardoning a turkey uh, doesn't come about until way way later on. Okay. Uh, it's a joke early on that, hey, they're not going to eat it right now. And eventually over over the course of the decades, the, the, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, it goes a little bit more with presidents like JFK saying they're going to let this one slide for right now, maybe <laughs> maybe give it a little time before they, um, yeah, go and eat it. And take care of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, take care of it. 
And uh, it, it's not until we have George H.W. Bush, though, that officially the first uh, pardoning of a turkey takes place, where he gives an official pardon to a turkey. So that turkey actually did live out the rest of its life. On a, on a nice farm. I love it. Yeah. Wow. I, I guess I didn't realize it was that recent, that, that it was the official right. H.W. That, I mean, that's not all that long ago. It's good to know. Yeah. It's good to know. Yeah, they, um, they send it back to JFK. They say that he, he was one of the first, but he never officially gave the pardon. Interesting. That is interesting. I'm going to preface my next one, gentlemen, by saying if you have small children who are listening, you might want to have them take a break. Maybe earbuds. Maybe earbuds. All right. Because we're going to talk about the Tooth Fairy. So I'll give you a second to do that. The legend of the Tooth Fairy dates back to the days of early Europe, where people would actually bury the teeth of their children in the ground as they fell out. Now, the reasoning behind the burying of the tooth varies according to some studies. Some believe that ridding themselves of their children's baby teeth would save them from suffering in the afterlife. Others, and these tended to be primarily Scandinavians, believe that children's teeth were tokens of luck in war and battle. Hmm. So think along the lines of the Vikings. They would wear them around their neck. During medieval times, fear of witches casting spells on children caused parents to bury and hide their teeth as they fell out. Now, this advanced over time where it became customary that after the sixth tooth was lost by a child, they would receive some sort of a a monetary reward. All right. But over time, parents, as Phil and I will tell you, parents began to give small rewards for each tooth instead of just the sixth one. Uh, The amount of the reward varies by financial capabilities of the children's uh, family, uh, what the child's peers are receiving, the overall mentality of what is acceptable throughout the, the, the people of the country. I will say this, a recent study, 2018, found that children in the U.S. receive on average, what do you think, you guys, what do you think, on average, per kid, per 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 tooth tooth from the tooth fairy in the U.S., per tooth? On average, I'll say $10. $10 I was thinking five. Okay. $3.70. Three dollars really? and seventy cents. Wow. So I'm not sure if this ten dollars is probably. Man. I was going to say inflation rates in 2023 were probably closer to ten or at least five. But yeah, in 2018, three dollars and seventy cents on average per tooth from the tooth fairy. I don't know if, if my daughter would be able to make change at five years old. I know. You know and I, mean? I don't want to take things. the chance of of dealing with that many coins. I usually go quiet. <laughs> Bills are quiet. They yeah. take debit. They take debit. There's a certain level of stress with that, though. Oh, I have to say, yeah. I. I those are one of those things you obviously do, but you you get you're very nervous doing it. Correct. Yeah. yeah it takes one in. slip up. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Number two, Phil. Oh, number two. Well, I'm going to continue on my weird track. Okay. Absolutely. Hope not to disappoint. We're going Hindu tradition now. Mm-hmm. Hindu tradition. I hope I pronounce this right. Thai Pusam, I think is is how you pronounce it. Celebrated in certain parts of India, of course, Southeast Asia, where participants. And I'm, as I say this, I'm sure you guys are immediately going to have a visual because I'm, I'm going to guess that you've seen this at some point, just never really coincided with what, what the celebration is. Participants pierce themselves with a range of sharp objects to prove their devotion to an ancient god. Every body part can be pierced. In fact, the more punctures you have, the more respect you gain from the people and from the gods. Um, as far as weird traditions go, this one, this one is very strange it says devotees often go into a trance-like state from the amount of pain that they're in and some are willing to push themselves to the limit including 
dragging entire vehicles with hooks attached to their skin. Now I've seen videos like this before, right? Where right. you have someone like being hung by their skin from their shoulders or, mm -hmm. or their back or something like that. Never in a million years that I realized that it was a Hindu tradition that was actually, you know, a, a devotion to an ancient God, uh, rather than just a, you know, a macho way of showing their, someone's strength and, and ability to endure pain. Okay, so I went from Groundhog Day with my first one to the Tooth Fairy. I'm going to kind of continue along with uh, my theme of holidays, gentlemen. Okay. We're going kissing under the mistletoe, all right, for my number third. The ancient Celts used mistletoe, wait for it, as an animal aphrodisiac, <laughs> or more specifically, to increase the fertility of sheep. <laughs> Such became the mythical power of mistletoe. Oh, that in addition on. to bringing um, a bountiful spring, mistletoe was hung over doorways to ward off things like fire and evil spirits going into your home. So there's a jump there. You're going from, hey, a bountiful <laughs> spring with your livestock to a symbol of, of good luck in your homes. But despite its protective properties, mistletoe couldn't get rid of its fertile past. And it goes from being something spring-related to Christmas related because of the new year. All right. And good luck in the new year. Sure. Even though it was hung in people's doorways, it seemed as if something romantic should occur in its presence. Thus the kissing. Uh, so it's a way of saying, you know, Merry Christmas, but also let's have uh, good luck in the new year. Now, I think this is important too, because I never noticed this or knew this about mistletoe, the berries associated with mistletoe. I know they're poisonous, but the power of a mistletoe runs out because this is what you're technically supposed to do. And maybe our listeners knew this. I didn't. Every time a man steals a kiss under the mistletoe, he must pay by removing one of its berries. Huh. And when the berries are gone, then the power is taken out of it. No more kissing. Never knew that. And it should be essentially retired. Wow. So there you go. I got to tell you, I was not prepared for that one. <laughs> no. That's why, hey, in true missing chapter spirit, I kept that from you guys. All right. You're welcome. Um, uh, you want me to take the reins on this one? Yeah. All right. Number three, here we go. Track down bazaar. Um, the Yanomami tribe who reside in the Amazon rainforest bordering Venezuela and Brazil are repelled by the idea of burying the dead. So they have a tradition of their own. They believe that there's no physical trace, that there should, should be no physical trace of the body. And it shouldn't be left in order to allow the spirit to physically and actually rest in peace. So the ash and bone powder obtained after cremation is mixed into a plantain soup, which is consumed by the deceased's family. By doing this, the Yanmi, uh, excuse me, the Yanamami believe the soul of their lost and loved one would actually still reside within them. Hmm. Is it considered cannibalism? That's the question. I might vote yes, because I find that incredibly disgusting. But who am I to judge a tribe in the Amazon? Report? It certainly fits the topic for today, though, which is strange and bizarre. Correct. Yeah. If we have any South American listeners, I would love a little input on that very weird tradition. Hmm. Yeah. All right, Justice. Well, going along the, the, the lines of honoring the dead, right? Um, one 
tradition that we have here in the United States of honoring the dead. Uh, quite an interesting one in a kind of strange way is the, the tradition of Halloween, right? We have sure. a little, little bit of history mm-hmm. there uh, where I know you guys have already covered uh, some on Halloween here, but the, the history there is quite an interesting one in terms of where it starts, right? It starts with with uh, those Celtic tribes. It mm-hmm. starts with those, those Celtic traditions about 2,000 years ago of celebrating life and celebrating death. Um, where these groups would get together and they'd have these massive celebrations actually at the end of their their harvest, right? And what they would do is they dress up in these kind of uh, maybe gross, if we think about them in modern day, animal garbs mm-hmm. where you would take the carcasses and you would remove the heads and they would put them on or, or with the theme of staying a little, <laughs> yeah. a little gross, it seems. Um, but it, it develops over time, right? It develops uh, as the Romans come and they take over this region and they have they, they hold on to some of these traditions and it turns into... Uh, this this tradition of being a celebration of saints later on and the celebration of martyrs really more so. And uh, you continue going on and throughout this Roman tradition, people would dress up as saints and they dress up as angels and devils and uh, to, to celebrate the, the, the people of the past. And, you know, over time, you continue fast forwarding and you end up in colonial America where it makes its way to the United States as a day to celebrate the dead and tell stories about uh, your loved ones in the past. And furthermore, it ends up developing as the celebration uh, in the more contemporary age where we think of trick-or-treating, right? Right, right. Where you go out and you um, essentially go door-to-door and it starts off as maybe a uh, little bit of a uh, rambunctious, I guess, rambunctious celebration where people would be partying all the time. And now it's turned into maybe a a nicer one along the way where kids go trick-or-treat door-to-door and... Uh, essentially, it's, it's roots there. Uh, this more American tradition, I should say, goes all the way back to those ancient Celts. Wow. Well yeah. done. Yeah. All right. So uh, coming in for my number four here, uh, I have quite an interesting one. Uh, I was going, I was surfing through the Internet, and I've seen this a few times pop mm-hmm. up now, and uh, it, it kind of str- surprised me when I saw it. Um, it's, it's one that's based in West Virginia. It's one that's based in Pocahontas County, West Virginia, actually. And it's quite an interesting tradition of cooking, right? A new uh-huh. a type okay. of cooking, yeah, uh, where they would have a roadkill cook-off. Oh, come yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, and it's been held yearly, <laughs> annually, actually, since 1991, right? And it's defined as a gourmet-styled roadkill cook-off where this large competition would take place uh, where these individuals would celebrate these dishes that are quote unquote, not found in your typical restaurant. Oh. Yeah. Is there any, is there a time limit? Are uh, they saying, Hey, roadkill within the last 24 hours? <laughs> they, they labeled it as all of the food at this festivity has to potentially have been roadkill. Okay. So okay. you can have whatever animal it is that could potentially get hit by a car or something. Oh, along those lines, And then you would turn that into a cuisine. So one of the things that I saw described was, Squirrel broth uh, is is a delicacy in this in this event. Sounds uh, appealing. Yeah, I maybe would not have been as grossed out if we didn't have a student eat a squirrel in the middle of an assembly. That's a yeah. true story. Yeah, true yep. story. Um, wow. Well, if, all right. If they uh, wow. took that and they turned it into a stew, they could have been eligible for that <laughs> that one thousand dollar plus reward and bragging rights within this uh, this 
<laughs> this could go off. That I'm sure the sick. bragging rights are really what you're cooking for, too. Oh my god, that's a that's a tough act to follow. All right. Well, I'm you're actually, gonna do it. Yeah. Uh for my number four, I'm actually going back because I know you talked about bride and groom being the best man here. And I it just dawned on me just now as I was going through these notes that I have I have a little something for you here too. Uh my number four <clears throat> goes to this story here. To this day, the bride and groom gather their guests around them. The beautiful wedding cake is sliced. And then what happens? Everyone in there wonders whether or not they're going to smear the cake on okay. each other's face. Mm -hmm. Now, you have two schools of thought here, kind of divided. Some people say, really tacky. Why would you ever do that? Don't do that. Plus, the cake is enormously expensive. Um, then you have the other camp that says, uh, hey, have at it. It's your wedding. Do what you got to do. Mm -hmm. So. Smashing the wedding cake across the newlyweds couple's faces. This is originating actually from the Romans. In ancient Rome, brides would have barley cake crumbled on their heads to symbolize future, future fertility, um, as well as male dominance. Now, here's the other one. When boys of an Amazonian tribe come of age, they must prove their manhood in a tradition that's torturous and terrifying. You ready? The young men trap bullet ants which are then drugged by a medicine man who places the deadly creatures in woven mitts. It is said the sting of a bullet ant, of one bullet ant, can be compared to a bullet hitting the flesh. The young men then have to wear the mitts on their hands and dance for a whopping 10 minutes to take their mind off the pain. This group uh, has to go through this ritual, you ready? At least 20 times in their lifetime. Oof. Oh boy! I would you consider that a weird tradition? I, it's I a think weird I tradition. Would. I didn't yeah, see it coming. Yeah. Um, we we're going from roadkill cuisine <laughs> to to that. I'm mine seems fairly tame, but we probably are going to answer a question: Why are our elections held every Tuesday, in November? I just dawned on me: There's zero way you could transition from what I said to right. what you have. No, okay. and I'm not even trying to transition. Yeah, Let's just no. keep it going. Sorry, sorry. So, does it seem a bit random, a little bit arbitrary that we choose the second Tuesday in November? Yeah, it does. Okay. So why not say a Saturday? Why not say May when the weather's nicer? Um, that seems a little bit more like you're going to get people out to vote. Well, again, this goes back to, like many of our traditions, I think, here in our country, it's based on our agrarian past and farming. So in early November, most of the crops are not only planted, but they've been harvested. Um, yet... Dirt roads remain dry enough to travel over, all right, by horse and buggy. This is also the time when these decisions are being made. You don't have polling stations that are readily available like what you have today. In almost every federal building, you know, it comes time for an election. Instead, it was common that you would actually have to devote an entire day's trip, an overnight trip, in fact, to reach a polling station at a county seat. So because Sundays are, you know, religious, we're not going to travel on Sunday. Mondays, therefore, have to be ruled out because people haven't gotten to the polling stations. Later in the week, your Thursday, your Friday, your Saturday even, is going to be, those days are going to be when you actually take what you've harvested, take them to markets. Those are opening. So those are out, which leaves Tuesday and then Wednesday to return home. So Tuesdays in November, because of when crops have been harvested and because roads are still, you know, uh, passable, that's when we're doing our elections. Let's add another element to this. Can we make election day a holiday? Why not? We've offered that right? up. We've I mean, said that before. listen, it's a possibility. 
Okay, so this next one, uh, it, it's a tradition. It's something I think you tend to do nowadays with with younger people, all right, kids. Who hasn't here made a pinky swear with someone before, right? Of course. Um, so a pinky swear, you make it with a best friend or a child. It's childish now, but the origins of this uh, are a little bit more gruesome. So the pinky swear, the highest of all provinces, an unbreakable oath, all right? In fact, what you're saying with this oath is that if you break it, the wronged party may essentially cut off your pinky. And that's the origin. The gist of the custom, all right, is a recent immigrant to the United States. It originated with the Japanese mafia, also known as Yakuza. And they would make the person, whether it's a debt that they were going to repay, something you were going to do for the mafia, you would make the pinky swear. And if you did that and you didn't follow through on it, they would take your pinky. It kind of sounds like... Uh, some samurai yeah. origins, you know, yeah. with seppuku, if you don't, you know, follow through, you're going to have yeah. to and, essentially and, and, kill and, and, yourself all on your sword. Like many of the ones we've talked about, they, they seem playful. They're kind of fun, but at the, you know, the origins are less than fun. The smearing of the cake, you know, being the other sure, one. Sure, sure. But uh, yeah, next time you make a pinky swear, how serious wow. are, are you about that pinky swear? I'm not about to tell my five-year-old no, that one, no. pinky swear. That's good advice. Um, you had no idea what mine was, my, my mm -hmm. last one, right? Okay. Well, it's, it, it's pretty interesting. You, you landed that one because okay. everybody, I think we could agree grieves differently after the loss of a loved one, but the women of the Dani or Dani tribe in Indonesia have quite a different, maybe you could say weird tradition or severe way oh of dealing with this grief. When they lose a loved one, the top joint of a woman's finger will be amputated. Yeah. <laughs> a string will be tied tightly around the oh. finger until it goes numb. And then a family member, often a sibling or parent, will then cut off the top of the finger. The wound is then burnt to stop the bleeding to prevent infection. The process is carried out to symbolize the pain suffered after the loss of a loved one and to keep the deceased person's spirit away. Uh, I'm hoping... Uh, we haven't inspired anybody to obviously amputate any fingers. We don't encourage that in any way, shape, or form. But the, ironically, you know, we chose tearing up people's fingers, the last one. Now, Phil, my mind immediately went to when you mentioned tying a, a string around your finger, which is also customary to do if you're trying to remind yourself of something. Oh, that's weird. Is yeah. there any, any I, no connection there? It never dawned on me. I didn't okay. even, No, I don't know. All right. I was just curious if that was if that was something that, but it doesn't sound like it. Now, I'm going to transition away from mine to justices because the inspiration for this very episode was justice coming in and saying, guys, please tell me you've heard of this tradition. And we looked at each other like he was nuts. No. And I'm a, I'm a lifetime resident of this area, upstate New York, Mohawk Valley. Um, went to high school here, grew up here, returned here after college. I'd never ever heard this tradition. And I'll also preface this. When he brought it up, we had a class coming in and we said to these kids, whoa, 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 before we get started today, how many of you have heard this tradition? Right. And overwhelmingly, they had and knew people who participated in it. Mm -hmm. All right. So buckle in for our last one. <laughs> Justice, the honor is all yours. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. And I, I don't really recall how it came up in the classroom, but uh, mm -hmm. it, it, it was definitely an interesting uh, road that we went down seeing who was familiar with it and who was not um but 
it's got quite an interesting history too that I want to talk about. And uh, yeah, so so the tradition is, right? I think it's the easiest just to get it out mm-hmm. there. Right? The tradition is after your for, your first kill of a deer while hunting, right? You would harvest the heart on the spot and you would take a bite of it. There you have it. It incredible. sounds as gruesome now as it, right. as it did when he and first so, told it. You know, initially I had some serious questions. I'm like, all right. Are you serious with this? And he was like, absolutely. People were telling me about this. Now, Justice, based on what you were told in your research, what are you supposed to, are you supposed to consume the bite? Yes. Yep. Yep. So, okay. so growing up in, in, in the Southern Adirondacks, I know a variety of people who got involved in this particular uh, tradi- tra- tradition. And uh, yeah, they, they eat the bite, right? It's one bite, you eat it, chew it up, you eat it. And uh yeah, and it, it's got roots. It's got an interesting roots. At okay. Least. Um, so it's it's not just f- for for being crazy or anything like that. Of <laughs> course, um, it's it's got history uh, in a variety of different hunting traditions that have existed throughout the Western world. Actually, um, you know, early on, I th- I think the probably most prominent time of this is like in the classical era around the eighth century, where blooding was a thing. Um, where after you would kill a, a creature, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. you would take some of its blood and you would, to, to honor the uh, saint of the hunt, Saint Hubert, uh, people would put it on their face, right? And okay. quite an interesting one. And it evolved over time, and you see it in traditions around Native Americans within the United States, uh, where they would go to eat the heart, right? They would eat the heart. In this tradition, uh, as a respect for the deer spirit, right, and you would take strength from the deer. It as, seems very tribal. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, it's funny that it has its roots kind of in that element. Yeah, yeah, and it, it seems like uh, hunters throughout time. You go, know, you go and look at a lot of these hunting websites. They actually will reference it about how it's wow. a way in which hunters go and they they bond with the animal that they're consuming. Because you know, within modern hunting, you don't just kill kill something to kill it; you kill it to consume it and take in the strength of it and the and a lot of its bravery and some uh, some of the other characteristics that deers have. And it is interesting because initially you think, boy, that's that's barbaric toward the animal, when in reality it's meant to be the exact opposite. I've never heard it put that way. That's actually really good. Respect and and revere for the animal. Wow. Hey, that's our top five, gentlemen. I think we yeah. did all right. We got a little mixture. We went a little crazy, a little rogue, eating hearts, chopping fingers off that last one. But we want to just say, hey, Justice, this is awesome. We're, we're so glad to have you on. And I'm sure we're, the listeners are going to hear much, much more of you in coming episodes. Possibly in a part two to this very topic. Yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity, guys. Uh, haven't had the opportunity to listen to you for the past few years. It's really nice being on board. It's awesome. And we're, we're glad to have you on board as part of our, our department. So Absolutely. Listen on. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. I'm Phil Horinder. I'm Justice Parker. Another chapter has been added to the history textbook.